yeah, you pay us, and then if they like it, they'll definitely they'll play it on the radio. But they need to, you know, it's not really up to me. So why am I paying you? It's not up to you. Surely, if I'm paying you, then that means that it is up to you, and therefore you, you know, that's like me paying someone to go to the shop and try and get me a chocolate bar when I could just go to the shop and ask for the chocolate bar myself. It doesn't work like that. You've got, you've just got to pay. You've just got to pay. Pay us. Pay us. Pay us. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 240 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And I'm very excited. Uh, This this has been in the making since before TMK was even created, since it was a, before it was a twinkle in our eye. Oh my God. Uh, I'm very excited to have on our guest for this episode, Nick Seaver, who is uh, an assistant professor of anthropology at Tufts University, uh, is the author of a book I've been waiting for for a very long time because uh, I've known Nick for a very long time. Uh, It's Computing Taste, Algorithms and the Makers of Music Recommendation, um, out now from University of Chicago Press. Uh, I, Nick, I've, I've been, I've been looking forward to reading this book since we were, but we grad students, um, talking about it while we were both in the very beginning stages of, of our research. So it's, it's, uh, I, I've known this has been coming and I'm, I'm so excited to finally have the finished product. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here and I am excited for that product to be finished. It's a great book. I mean, we will got, we will get into it, but it is a long time in the making, which I think is, I, I think is also something. I, I always associate you, Nick, with just classic anthropology, um, and it's all. And I think you do a great job of applying a really classic form of anthropology to studying. Uh, you know, very contemporary subjects. And so in classic anthropological way, um, when, when other people go in and they study algorithms, they, you know, they read some, some New York Times articles, um, they think some big thoughts and they write some articles. You, as, an, as a classic anthropologist, we're like, I'm going to study algorithms and it's going to take me 10 years <laughs> of, of, in, oh, of in-depth ethnography uh, oh. to, uh, with the main makers of these algorithms um, to really understand how an algorithm is actually like a uh, a trap from 500 years ago or 5,000 years ago. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. It's yeah, it's a, uh, I am an anthropologist now, I suppose. And I was, I became an anthropologist while I was working on this project. So I sort of learned how to do it by doing it in this weird way. But yes, I appreciate that. That is definitely the distinctive feature of this book from other books about algorithms. It is very anthropological, probably uh, for better and worse. 
It is. I mean, it, it absolutely stands apart and, and, you know, we'll, we'll get into it for sure. But I think just right up top, like this is not like other books on algorithms whatsoever, in part because it's real. It's so, you are so in depth in your subject, which is music recommendation algorithms, right? Like this is something we'll talk about the kind of theories of taste of human taste, um, the theories of listening and, and uh, audio cognition, you know, these kinds of ideas that, uh, uh, the, the makers of these algorithms have in mind when they're thinking about how to do music recommendations. So you get really deep into it, but it is also, a subject that, or, or it's a study that sticks really close to its subject. Um, and, and like I said, I think in that really classic ethnographic way, which we don't see a whole lot of in part because it's, it's really difficult. And we can talk about this. It's really difficult to do that. In fact, the, the epilogue of your book kind of talks about this, that like doing this kind of corporate anthropology or rather, let's say anthropology of corporations because corporate anthropology is its own Thank thing. You. Um, this is an anthropology of corporations and uh, it, it's really difficult to, to do that because the, they want to make it difficult to do that kind of work. Yeah, that's true. I would say, you know, so I've been working on this for a long time, like you said, and when I started writing stuff and uh, publishing it about this project, the first, I don't even know how many pieces, like a lot, were methodological. It was just like, how can we do this? Like, how can you study an algorithmic system ethnographically, right? In this sort of fairly traditional um, method of, you know, going and being among people if you want to study people who don't really want you to be among them. Um, and so, yeah, there are certain, some things that are new, right? Like corporations, if you wanted to say like, I'm going to do an ethnographic study of Facebook or whatever. Like Facebook is going to say, no, no, thank you. And you can't go in there. And there's, you know, it's hard to get in there. However, it is true that historically, most of the people who have been studied ethnographically don't really want to be. They don't have the power that Facebook does to stop you. But, you know, if you're like really, really old school anthropologist, white guy colonist going into some colonized space, um, those people don't want that guy to study them, them either. Yeah, and that that's really the key here is the power asymmetry. Do you have do you as the subject of a study have the power to say no thank you or do you have the power or do you not have the power and you can kind of say, "Well, I really wish you weren't here, um but like the only recourse of action we have is to uh, uh either accept you or kill you." Right? And like that power asymmetry is really crucial. <laughs> they can also lie to you. Or they yes. can, uh, you know, ignore you. There's all sorts of things to do. In any case, I think one of the things that came up a lot when I was working on this 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 project, like the grad student research aspect, was that every time I was like, okay, here's like a brand new problem. Like, oh, I can't get access in this specific way because like it's a co corporation. Someone would always be like, is that really true? Like, is that really new? Like, people could not talk to you before. And like, society's complicated all over the place. And like, people use technologies that are complicated and they don't understand. And I found that really useful to keep returning to because if there's one sort of drum that I've been beating on here, it's this idea that like algorithms are not new or like the what we need to do to study these things isn't really to like invent a whole bunch of new shit so that we can start new centers and get special grant funding for doing exactly this unique brand new thing. In the work before leading up to the book, you would try to communicate to people this this idea, this sense of the algorithm not really doing something new, but returning to older older methods. 
So yeah, it's, that's a good question. I think that the the big thing here is that we have to transport ourselves back a decade ago to when I was doing the early part of this research and discourse about algorithms was totally different from what it is now. Right. So when I, when I started this project, uh, people didn't talk about algorithms. I didn't think I was doing an algorithm project. I actually thought I was doing an anthropology of classification, uh, project, which was my original framing when I was writing grants way back in the day. We, it was, this wasn't a thing. I sort of lucked into it. I mean, this is silly to say, but like algorithms obviously became a super trendy topic in our corners of academia and I did not do that on purpose. That was totally an accident. And the, um, <clears throat> I should say the way that I sort of came at them was seeing all of this talk that was like algorithms are these inhuman things. They're subjecting human life to inhuman logics and like who knows what computers want, man. And I was like, that's not, doesn't make any sense. Like all these humans make these algorithms and they change them all the time and they update them and they revise them and they do experiments with them and they decide when they work and when they don't. All of that's people stuff. Um, but yeah, it's all people <laughs> stuff, right? And so you can study people, you can talk to them and know things about what they think. And so really the mission of, of the dissertation that turned into the book was how do these people who work in this, these systems, how do they think? Like, well, how do they think about the stuff that they're working on? How do they think about music? How do they think about taste? How do they think about listeners and listening? And that was it. Um, it was a fairly like naive and simple project in some ways, just because I wanted to not take that for granted that I knew. I think a lot of people had a sense that they knew already, right? They like read a New York Times article and they're like, I know exactly what these guys think. Um, and so I just said, I don't know, maybe we don't. Maybe we don't know what they think. Maybe we need to go talk to them. Um, and maybe if you talk to them and you talk to them a lot uh, and you really push them, you'll find out that they think some like weird stuff that you didn't expect that they thought necessarily. Hmm. You know, I'm assuming that you didn't talk to them in the exact structured order that you have in the book, but like, you know, what made sense for you to talk to what group of people made sense for you to talk to first? Well, the, so the, the, the people that I, <clears throat> the people that I wanted to talk to and the people that I got to talk to, Turned out to be different, but I, I should say the, so the company that I call Whisper uh, in the book was a was a music recommender company. Um, ended up getting acquired by another company, as tends to happen in this space. And they were really on my list from the get go. I was really interested in this company. They did a lot of work. Um, I knew that the people working there were sort of thoughtful. I had met some of them socially um, through other people that I knew. This is like backstory of studying up algorithmic things because. This is the way in, basically, is you need to know someone who knows someone. I made this formal proposal to study them because I had someone advising me who worked who had worked in a business school and was like, you know what corporations like? They love clarity. They love like a real clear proposal of research. So I wrote up this super formal thing that was like, this summer, I would like to study you, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and all of a sudden, these people who had been talking to me and being like, like friendly and stuff, boom, silence. <laughs> they, they sent me on to their lawyers and, and I was like, oh, oh shit. And so I got rejected. They, they, the whispers shut me down. Like the year before I ended up there, they shut me down. And so what did I do? I moved to San Francisco. I was like, maybe I'm going to like just study people in the Bay area and like find them somehow. And so I got to go to some companies and interview people and that was useful. And some of that ends up in the book, but I was desperate. I was just like, I, I lived in San Francisco. I moved to New York for a little bit in this 
this period. Thank God I had I had research funding that let me that let me sublet an apartment in New York for like a month. I was just trying to find people. And eventually I was going to these conferences. So there's two big ones. One is the uh, Association of Computing Machinery, which is like the US like big computer science conference. They have a recommender systems conference every year and they've had it for by this point like 20 something years. Uh, and there's another one called Izmir, which is the International Symposium on Music Information Retrieval. And those both show up in the book. Um, but I was going to these two conferences every year. And then I would see the same people at those two conferences. The overlap there was like the people I wanted to study and me. And at some point, one of them said to me, he said, Nick, do you want to study us? I was like, yes, I do. He worked at Whisper and he was like a, he was like a big, uh, a big enough deal in that company that his decision, he was like, you can come. And so I'm like a vampire. Like I could only come in if you invite me and they invited me in and that was it. And it was incredible. Like literally I got, I don't think he even knew that another part of the company had rejected me the previous year. Um, mm. but yeah, it's, it was, yeah, it was hard. There's so much there. I mean, this is also, I, I love that we're starting off by talking about methods because this is, it's such an important part of the book. And I think for people who maybe are like, what do I have? I don't really care about music recommendation algorithms. It's like, you know, oh, I, you know, Hey, I love the day, the, 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 you know, the discover weekly on Spotify. That's great. <laughs> but that's about the extent to which I care about the music recommendation algorithms. But I think all of this starting with the kind of method stuff is really great because this is a good uh, a really great book for thinking about the topic in that meta and methodological way like th thinking about the topic right um and, and thinking about how to study the topic and also this is great um uh, because everything you're describing right now is not you know explicit in the book but is uh it's great to hear because it's very validating for for, for me because uh, you know I'm not an ethnographer but I, I I more have dalliances with ethnography and use it uh you know find how it's useful for for my work but with like the you know studying the insure tech industry as I'm doing right now right. like going to the conferences is so crucial but also what you were mentioning around like move like the the danger of moving an informal relationship into a formal relationship can really change the, uh, the, the, the structure of that and change like radically overnight, you know, suddenly change access, change the tone and vibe of their relationship. You know, I have, it's also, it's one reason why, um, I have a lot of field notes and not a lot of audio recordings uh, yes. with my with my work um, because it's like I I have a lot of conversations with a lot of the same people and the moment I ask them hey you want to come into a conference room for thirty minutes and or or sixty minutes and like talk into this microphone um, they're gonna say no. <laughs> But they would be happy to talk for me, talk with, they'd be happy to talk with me for two hours over drinks at the cocktail reception and divulge so much more than they would in that conference room. But it's a difference of the, the, the vibe and the tone of the relationship. The best thing for that is, I think has ever happened to interview recording for ethnographers or smartphones, because you, cause you say, you're like, you mind if I record this? It is a real casual. You're like having a conversation in an office and you just, and you record on your phone and you put your phone down on the desk 
and they forget about it. And I was like, <laughs> there's this like, there's this fundamental creepiness, I think, which we have to acknowledge ethnographic methods, which is that like you've been saying, right? Like I got to like sidle up to the people in the company and be like, Hey, whatever, we're just friends. And I'm just going to like creep in a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And I'm not, you know, in this case, I'm not trying to like harm them. I'm not trying to do anything that they, that is really against their best interests. I don't think, um, not necessarily, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, you got to creep a little bit to, to make ethnographic methods work in these contexts where, yeah, as soon as you're like, okay, let me be very clear. I'm going to write a book about you right now. I mean, they know they have to know that they're, you're an anthropologist. I have human subjects protections and so on. Um, but the way that you talk about it and the sort of formality of the approach is so important. Um, and it's, it gets actually at this important thing, right. About the positionality of the researcher, which is a thing we like to talk about in like a really abstract way in these fields where it's like, I'm this kind of person and therefore I wrote this kind of book. But really it has to do with, you know, what kind of social relations do you have? What kind of assumptions do the people make about who you are and like what kind of knowledge you have? So I, you know, look very similar to the, to the sort of like dominant hegemonic white guy of the same age as me working in these companies. And that let me do a certain kind of research. Um, whereas if I had a different demographic makeup, I would have had to do a different kind of project, right? The way the, the kinds of access you get are different. Um, and I think, you know, that, that that's all to say that there's not only one ethnography of this sector to be written. I think that there's many ethnographies to be written that would get at different things uh, from different points of view. Absolutely. And, and I think as well, one of the things your book does really good because it focuses so much on the makers or the, in the making of these music recommendation algorithms. I think something you said earlier is really crucial, especially for maybe people, listeners of TMK, um, who are, you know, more aligned with like the kind of the kind of stuff that like, you know, maybe like my work, right. Which is much more like structural political economy. Um, you know, and you're very much focusing on the, like the, the kind of more smaller scale, like getting in there. And I think you need both to talk to each other. Um, of course it's not, it's not structure versus agency. I hate this interminable debate. Or is uh, it? it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> I hate this interminable no, right. debate. Um, it's a dialectic. Uh, it's a, it's a relationship of, and not one of, or that's algorithmic right there. Is it and or, or if or then, but anyway, so um, no, but I think one of the things that your book really p points out and something you just mentioned as well is that like, these people who like the engineers and the, 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 you know, the, the different, uh, coders and programmers and, you know, product managers and all these, you know, people within these companies do have very different, uh, and often competing theories of, what an algorithm is, how it should do, what it does do, um, what humans are, what they do, how they work, right? How algorithms and humans interact with each other and should. And so like, there's a lot of competing theories here, which in other words is that like the product, the technology has politics, but also the people who make the technologies have politics. And I think that like in, in the impulse to perhaps oversimplify, um, by to problematize the product, but over the technology, but oversimplify the makers of the technology, you miss out really important sites of politics, right? Like there's all kinds of compromise and conflict and consensus work that happens in the making of a technology. And then of course, I think it's a really crucial question of what does become materialized, concretized, what 
what what politics in that artifact do work in the world but your book really focuses on on that aspect of like not only is the artifact political but the making of the artifact is also full of lots of politics and in terms of like human interpersonal relationships. And, and I think that does get lost a lot um, in work that focuses on one level, but doesn't dig down into another level where you, um, you do think you, you like, there is this idea that there's just like, a hegemonic consensus view um, rather than a bunch of, you know, within like what engineers think um, rather than like a lot of asymmetries um, and, and structural constraints and imperatives and influences and stuff, but also a lot of interpersonal conflicts and compromise and consensus. Yeah. I think that it's a thing that anthropologists sort of always have to deal with in these ethnographies where we want to be talking about like big social phenomena. We have a kind of obligation to get there through local situations. Uh, and I think it's a really handy sort of a constraint to have on at least like one set of people working on this stuff um, because it keeps, it keeps you honest a little bit, right? You can't just go in there and be like, Oh, here's what these people are doing. I know. Um, But it also helps you sort of tie those layers. um, It helps you sort of tie those layers together. Uh, And I want to say like on the, on the, the question of sort of the big structural factors, there's a few moments in the book where I'm like, all right, here's like big structural explanation that I know I expect my readers are probably aware of like it's like oh isn't it isn't it like this yes okay but it's also this other thing so i was giving a talk about this recently and someone uh i mean i'm doing a little like series of book talks and someone uh, in one of them uh, at an ivy that i will remain unnamed just said isn't this just neoliberalism and i was like yes (laughs) it is and it's, and it's also all this other stuff. Um, and so in some sense, this is like a picture of, you know, of the detail of some of this stuff, which I think is useful because like you mentioned, um, you know, stuff happens here. It's not nothing. It's not epiphenomenal to the big, to the big structure. I think like I've been arguing these like weird little human bits are load bearing in these systems, right? It's like how people, uh, you know, it affects how these systems work. Actually, it does matter. I think that these people think in particular ways, and if they thought in different ways, then the systems actually would work differently. Um, I don't think that the existence of recommender systems is is causing everyone to act in a particular way. Um, so it's so it's so they're load bearing, and then also, and this is I, I mean, it's a question of how much this matters. Um, but if you want to understand what these people are going to do and especially what they're going to do in response to public critique, it's useful to have a sense of how they think about these kind of questions, right? So, like, imagine, for instance, there's a chapter in the book that talks about this, but imagine that your critique of these systems is that they take data out of context, right? This is something that I've written about in other places, and it's in the book. Uh, you're like, okay, you're, you, know, you know that I listened to Hit Me Baby one more time, but, like, you don't know why, you don't really understand me because you only know the play count. You just know the fact of the playing and they go, yeah, that's true. We would love to have context. Can we have access to your GPS coordinates 24 seven um, so that we can put you in context? And you're like, no, that's not what I, that's not what I meant. Uh, I meant like, I meant something else, um, which is fine. Right. It's like useful, but now, okay, now we're getting somewhere and now we realize the problem is not context per se. The problem is something else. The problem is like what we mean by context or what we think Uh, other data does to make sense of other data, right? Like what other data do I need to put something into context? And I think secretly when it comes from us, us being the like qualitative critical social science kind of people, uh, the answer is nothing. You can never do it. (laughs) Context is impossible 
fuck off. And that's not the way that they think. Yeah. And, and I think it's a difference of like, is, is context a technical problem that can be overcome with a technical solution or as I, as I think you're right, like, you know, the, the way we talk about context is much more like sacred and holy. Right. And it's like something you can't solve. It's something you can profane, uh, you know, and, and that's a very different way of understanding context. Yes. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. You can never get it like that. I think that honestly, the way that we use it, and that's not necessarily bad. I, it's just, it's just, let's be, let's be clear about the nature of this critique, right? If we're saying like, you don't have the right thing, it's a little bit of a different claim than you can never have this thing. So you should do something else. One, one thing I'd be curious about is, like, well, you know, if we're, if we're looking at, or some of the insights maybe you've gleaned from looking at some of these algorithmic and human mediated systems, you know, I think it's one thing I've been considering or thinking about is reading parts of the books is, you know, what actually, what, what, what would be a desirable way of mediating human social experiences, especially with music? You know, like what do, are we at a point or do we have an idea of what, of, of what we would like to put into that sort of computational process is the, is the algorithm and the other components that we have today, part of it, or during your research, did you, have you come to the sense or have you had the sense beforehand that it would just kind of require a different approach entirely? That is a great question. So, so my first obligation is like when I try to put my anthropologist hat on, which is hopefully not some sort of horrible like pith helmet or whatever. I say, I don't know, right? Like I'm not, I don't know what the the, the right one is, right? I'm going to go out and be like, here's what's happening. It could be anything. I have some ideas about what I think would be better um, based on just like not. I can't. I I would not pretend that they are based exclusively on research by me because they're probably just based on me being annoyed with certain features of Spotify or something. But I think honestly, and this is corny, I just think that the biggest issue is the centralization. I mean, I think uh, like I don't. A lot of people suggest, and I think this is wrong. A lot of people suggest that recommendation itself is the problem, uh, and then they link recommendation to things like on-demand streaming that doesn't pay enough to artists, for instance. And recommendation and on-demand streaming feel really linked in our minds right now, like they're the same thing, but they're not the same thing. Recommender systems for music got developed in the mid-1990s um, when it was telling you what CDs to buy. And right, it felt for sure, like I can tell you, because I started Fieldwork about the same time that the big on-demand streaming services finally like kicked off in the US and it was feeling like we're here now. Um, it really did feel like, oh yeah, that this is what we've been waiting for. Remember iTunes Genius, which would make recommendations of MP3s from your own MP3 library? That just seems b- absurd now, right? Why, what do I need that for? That's my own. I'm, that's my own MP3s. Recommender systems are for on-demand streaming. So, in any case, one of the things that I'm sort of obligated to do, and this is again, not everyone's obligated to do this, but I tried to do it in the book, is to say, you know, some of this stuff makes sense, right? It's not like it's not an outrageous idea uh, to do some of the things that are done in this book. Of course, there that doesn't mean that they're going to have good consequences or that there aren't other ways to do things. But I do try at, in most places, maybe not everywhere successfully, to say, here's how this makes sense. Like If you think about it this way, it is not absurd to say, for instance, if you listen to an artist a lot, you probably like them more than an artist that you don't listen to a lot. Like That is not a very weird claim to make. But of course, it could have funny knock-on effects when done in aggregate, when centralized, especially, uh, and when like every last bit of cultural content on the internet is pushed through the same logic. 
those, those things all change the picture, but the basic intuitions are not that absurd. I'm curious too, because in, you know, it is good to think back about like, you know, both at once how old a lot of these things are. Um, you know, and this is something that your book does a lot of time doing as well as, you know, saying that these like kind of theories of human taste have been very live and lively debates uh, in, in scholarship for a very long time. Um, you know, we've started off the show by saying algorithms are not like new things. Um, you know, they, they kind of got reified uh, and fetishized as, as these new things like 10 years ago, but they're, but they're not. And they, you know, and then not, you know, algorithms as like a computer program, you know, like a logic, like logical instructions for a computer to do something have been around for uh, you know, uh, almost a hundred years now. Um, but like algorithms as like in a more like, you know, formulaic sense of like mathematical programs or logical or systems of logical thinking um, have been around for so much longer. Right. And so like, I think contextualizing historicizing is important. I mean, like it, I do a lot of that with my work too, being like, you know, like digital platforms are not like new. Um, like this is not some like new era of like post capitalism or whatever, but it's like, it's a lot of the same kinds of capitalism <laughs> that uh, people that Marx and Engels were writing about 200 years ago and stuff like that. And all I have to say is I think that's like that important, that historicization is extremely important. It is also important to realize how like what is new or how things become new and thus become really influential or really widespread very suddenly. And it is, and I think like the last 10 years, like since you started the field work to the publication of the book, like recommendation algorithms, uh, you know, and not just within music, but absolutely within music, you know, with the streaming services, with the rise of Spotify, with the Netflix prize and, and all of that. And then, you know, you talk about this in the book, but also like, you know, recommendation algorithms on like Amazon, uh, on, you know, on Google, you know, for Google search and stuff like, like increasingly over the last 10 years, the recommendation algorithms have become massive and massively important and totally ubiquitous in like all these invisible infrastructural um, ways, but also very visible consequential ways. And so I, I wanted to ask you, like, while your book focuses very much on music recommendation algorithms, because um, you got to draw a boundary around something, right? Uh, I, I, how, how, how have you, but also how have your, um, the people you've been talking to in your field work or during your field work how how do they think about this much wider world of recommendation algorithms okay so so the basic deal is like you know i'm focusing on music in the book just because it's bounded to a certain extent um and it helps me you know avoid flying off into saying like generic stuff about algorithms everywhere although i say that i do that in articles instead uh, and the um so what happens in uh, sorry music in relation to other other domains uh 
once upon a time, I used to say, oh, these are really similar to each other, actually, right? Like all these different recommendation domains have like some basic operations that are shared. And that's true. There are some like, you know, some of the stuff I talk about the, in the book is not unique to music at all. It's used all over the place. Um, the basic logics are the same. I mean, to be honest, not only in recommendation, but in like machine learning in general. So I've had people read the book and are like, this is basically an ethnography of machine learning and it would be useful. <laughs> like, they're like, you should have put machine learning uh, in the name somewhere to be like, that's, you can learn things about machine learning in this book. Okay, maybe I should have. Um, but what people talk about in this space is, so what makes music recommendation different from other things? A few things. One is that uh, music is backgrounded in a way that other things are not, right? So if you are like looking through your Facebook feed or watching TikTok or YouTube or whatever, um, music is going to be usually in the background while you do something else. Um, and this has really interesting consequences because a lot of the like mental health stuff around recommendation uh, music is escaping basically totally unscathed because nobody thinks it's bad to listen to music in the background while you do something else. As not, I haven't run into them yet, at least. Um, so you'll see, like, you know, people passing, like, trying to pass bills in Congress or whatever that are like, we got to block autoplay. Like, we're going to make autoplay illegal. Not for music, though. It's cool on music. Like, like, like music is fine. And so that's interesting, right? Because it points to some ways that music is different from other domains. Um, but it's also useful, I think, and I mentioned this in the book, that like music feels to a lot of the people involved, like it's kind of low stakes, right? Like they're like, no, it's not going to like immediately cause someone to lose their livelihood and so on. And yes, there are consequences that can matter a lot um, related to recommendation for people, but it is not no, no, predictive no one's policing. No children have become Nazis because of Spotify. Not yet. Not yet. Not that, that we know no, of. <laughs> not that, I will tell well, you. Well, Joe Rogan's that, on Spotify now, so I take that back. Yeah, so there's, there's podcasts. Yeah, the podcasts are their own thing. And uh, there are spoken word albums on some of these streaming services, including historical recordings uh, that include certain, some people's favorite, um, you know, white supremacists from time to time. And those actually pose a problem for recommender systems when they're in the, when they're in the catalog, because they get, you know, they have to be suppressed or they get recommended in inadvertently. You'd be surprised. I think so. The other thing that you're pointing to that separates music from these other domains is that music, especially on like a streaming service, like Spotify um, is much, much, much smaller and more curated, right? So it's not user generated content, broadly speaking, right? There's a, there's a lot more of an apparatus for sort of like filtering things before it makes it in. Um, and so there's less opportunity for things like the kind of stuff that content moderators have to deal with to pop up in these platforms. There are spots for it. So basically anywhere you open up a platform to user-generated anything, it will happen. So if you let people have profile pictures, I remember one thing I heard about in the field, I don't think this is in the book, is that if you let people make playlists, which you do on all these platforms, they will make acrostics using the first letters of the, <laughs> of the songs and they will put um, racial slurs in them because you can't stop people. Uh, from doing it, from doing it online, so you'd be surprised uh, at the kinds of uh, <laughs> the kinds of problems yeah. that some of these platforms have to deal with. You just even have to when say you it. think it's <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, so even when it's like constrained, you're like, please, 
What? <laughs> okay. You can't believe it. Like give give him the tiniest degree of freedom on the wow. platform and the internet. Well, it's fucked. Fucking races got too much time on their hands. That's what's happening. <laughs> That's some, the racist got to get a job. It's what we talked about a few weeks ago about the guy who like spent so much time trying to get chat GPT to say the word by engineering oh the exact yeah, yeah, yeah. right prompt and, and scenario. But at any rate, and it didn't work. <laughs> it's not going to say it. They hard coded it. It's not going to say it. There's a one thing that is the one thing the computer can do for sure. It's not going to say it. <laughs> because it's just every time it's going to have the word in it. No, 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 no. But, uh, so there's other ways that music is different. Um, that like, I would say that actually the other big one that's important and it's related to this backgrounding thing, um, is that in one of the chapters in the book, I talk about this shift between explicit and to implicit ratings. So in the early days of recommender systems, um, we were talking like mid 1990s for like 15 years from then, the model of a recommender system was basically like, we're just going to predict what ratings people are going to give to stuff. And we're going to show them stuff that they, we predict they're going to rate highly. Right. So like, we think you're going to rate this movie on Netflix five stars. Therefore we're showing it to you. And that was sort of it. That was like the framing of the problem. Um, music very quickly became this sort of like poster child for implicit ratings, which is to say treating like behavioral data as though it were ratings because people don't want to rate every song they listen to, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. And it seems like I said earlier, like it makes sense to treat like listening all the way through a song versus skipping a song as like kind of liking it. Right. Mm -hmm. That like kind of makes sense. Have you had any conversations with with the the people you know making these music recommendation algorithms about how they think about other recommendation algorithms, right? Like, do they talk about, you know, the, the way that like Amazon's recommendation algorithms work or, or, you know, do they talk about the way they work, the way they're different? Do they, or do they like maybe even have different thoughts? Like, Ooh, like them using recommendation is like really spurious or they're doing it for spurious Uh reasons. But the way we do it is actually like, you know, fine and and good because we do it in this different way for these different reasons. Like, I'm just curious, in other words, like not generalizing all recommendation algorithms, but also not generalizing all the same, all the industries and sectors and spaces and people and engineers and, and, and so on that make them like, are there these kind of like inter or intra uh, sectoral conversations happening? That is a great question. The things I can think of off the top of my head are mostly people talking about other music companies and like, what do you think they're doing? And the takeaway was always like, everyone is doing exactly the same thing, which is they're making ensemble models where they combine together every signal under the sun, like anything they can find, regardless of what it says in their promotional material. This comes through in the book, I think, is that basically everybody is using some big like dog's breakfast mixture of just whatever they can get their hands on. And, and that's it. Um, I do think uh, that the people that I spoke with mostly in music, they would consider themselves to be like, like good guys in this broader field. Like they care about this stuff. They're reading Kate Crawford. They're sending me things that are like, you know, critical of bias in these systems. 
this is also weird. They're literally going to workshops where this stuff is being presented, uh, you know, early, early on, like, like surprisingly early before you get a lot of corporate pickup of it. Uh, and so they care about it and they're worried about it. And I think they do have a sense. Um, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think there is a sense that like, it's not as bad in music as it is in Facebook. Right. That like, there's something worse about Facebook than about music. And, you know, I mean, I'm not in the like comparison game to say which of these is the worst thing for society or whatever. Um, but I, you know, that makes sense to me. Like I, I buy it. I, that there's, that there's something not quite so horrible about, about music recommendation, but I don't want to let them off the hook either. I think they're, you know, they're big kids. They can handle it. And this does come through in the, uh, I think it's in the epilogue of the book. It's near, it's near the end of the book where you are talking about how, you know, uh, music discovery is kind of held up as this like inherently good thing. And it was like a socially beneficial thing. You're also, I mean, you do spend a lot of time talking about in the book about how the people working at these like internet radio slash, you know, music streaming slash music recommendation, like all these different companies, like they tend to be like, really big like you know really big into music right like they are big lovers of music and they're really into it and Talk you know you talk about it, like the the company where you were interning and doing a lot of ethnography is like always the 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 the, the corp the kind of company playlist or the office playlist is always yes. going and everybody has access to change putting stuff on the playlist and you know and then you know, but one thing i'm really thinking of is I think it was the um, the the guy you call Greg, who is uh, what was it, the co-founder or founder of of Whisper, yeah. um, and you finally you know get an interview with him, like you know after you were winding up your field work and stuff, and you use this as the epilogue, and and you, and I think it's here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's here where he's talking about essentially like the the kind of surprise and shock that like you know uh, of capitalism basically like you know oh like we're just engineers who wanted to like create like a like a useful and socially beneficial product we wanted to help people discover the thing they love music and discover more of it and different of it and improve their lives and then we got into this whole like like Business, like capitalist system that had like business imperatives and profit motives and kept pushing us to do like really kind of questionable and nefarious things like using a, a dog's breakfast mix of like all the possible data we could about people to create these hyper personalized like profiles or, or theories of their taste and preferences and do things that are maybe uh, actually geared towards like advertising and profit making and stuff like that. Like it just, I mean, like I'll be the one to say that it seems extremely <laughs> naive and I question the, the kind of uh, performative naivete um, that I, that to me comes through in some of this that like, Oh, you just stumbled into like, you didn't realize this was a capitalist system. You didn't realize the venture capitalist uh, had capitalist imperatives at their back, <laughs> you know, but like, but I think it does kind of speak as well to maybe the stories we tell ourselves, whether they're story, like to the, the like they are still, important. We all tell ourselves stories about what we do and how we do it and how we live and so on. And whether we believe that they believe those stories or not, I think it's interesting that they feel like they need to tell themselves and tell people like you those stories to kind of create 
uh, a, a bit of a, at least a bit of a, like, I'm really, you know, struggling um, over these con conflicting um, constraints and imperatives and pressures and tensions. I think that's very fair. I don't think that we need to be like too nice to them. And yeah, so the epilogue is basically, I think my gloss on that, and this is funny because it's one of those bits that like, you know, anyone who's tried to turn a dissertation into a book has these like fewer than you would think, at least in my experience, uh, like new things that you think in the process of doing it where you're like, okay, this is actually like a framing idea for me. And I think this is one of them, which is that I think these people really were not prepared to be as successful as they were, um, which isn't to say like, oh, they were surprised that capitalism exists and they, like, they should have known better and they, they probably should have known better. Um, but I do think that, like I was saying before, that like the sort of impact of recommendation as a technology, and I'm saying this like recommendation separate from something like, you know, the, the payment plans at, at on-demand music streaming insofar as you can separate them. They're just different when it start when it moves from being like a little curiosity on the side of the interface to being the thing that everything comes through, right? There's this real power in it that like we're saying, well, yeah, of course there is, there's power in it. But like, okay, remember 10 years ago when the recommender system was not everything, uh, and it was a little dingus on the side of the app that nobody thought worked and they thought it was shitty and it was like a gimmick and you would do it for fun. And that was what it was, right? Like when a lot of these people started, it didn't work. And I think I, I, I've always been telling people this, that like, you know, two big things changed about recommender systems over the course of my, you know, starting this work. And now one is that nobody thought they worked when they started. Uh, and the end, uh, and now they do. Now they think they work so well. That brings us to thing two: that they're bad. <laughs> that like that it works so well that it's a problem. <laughs> um, like when they started, they were. I mean, some people had written critical things about them. I, you know, uh, props to to Oscar Gandy and to Helen Nissenbaum and Batya Friedman in particular, who had some of the real canonical stuff that was getting in on on versions of this quite early, because um, they saw what could happen if you like, you know sort of uh, put, you know, everything through this, but like the guys building these systems. And I, I say guys advisedly, uh, cause it definitely is, it was a very, very male dominated space. It, it didn't, it wasn't a thing. It didn't work. Everyone thought they were stupid. I will say like the first recommender system for music that I can recall having like big popular pickup and like few people saying this works was discover weekly and discover weekly came out after I finished my field work. That's how long I've been working on this stupid book for. Um, but like, but like that's, it's a change. And I think it's worth remembering like just how janky these systems seemed um, um, early on. But yes, I think regret, and we can say like, at what point did you start to realize that you were having your utopian technical visions corrupted by capital? Probably earlier than uh, you decided to leave the company. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. When you first um, came across these recommend recommender systems that did start to work, you know, you you listed off some people who had canonical criticisms of, of the recommender systems. Could we talk a bit about you know concerns that they had, and maybe what would or what any in, in your research you've seen in the field work you've seen that can or maybe can't be addressed at this point. Yeah. So, so if you think about sort of like a classic critique, so Oscar Gandy, for instance, has some like absolutely visionary stuff about in particular, the way his framing of it is sort of like personalization for, for advertising primarily and seeing this sort of, you know, this was a dynamic that was in play in, in advertising research and market research for a while before it appeared in, in recommender systems on the computer, you know, a very sort of like hyper profiling, hyper 
precise targeting, the kind of stuff that people like, you know, uh, get freaked out about, like Cambridge Analytica or whatever, right? Like, like earlier versions of this. And so Gandhi's really concerned about the consequences that can have for groups of people that could not previously be identified easily, um, for how it might be possible to identify, you know, what we talk, call the proxy problem now, this idea that, you know, you have your data set and it doesn't have any race data in it. It just has the genres of music that people listen to in it, um, which is going to proxy for race in, in certain ways. You know, and so so he, I think some of these critiques are really spot on in the in the idea of like, hey, if everything is run through this filter that has a kind of opaque logic in it, um, opaque to like the end user, uh, whatever the logic of that filter is, is going to be really influential. And so it's important to think about you know what consequences that 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 the, that logic might have. And the the goodness thing, I don't know the, the the working the you know what happens when a system works. I think is important because our sort of canonical thing to remember in the social analysis of technology is that nothing works like in itself, right? Nothing no no technology actually works. Like the the other thing you have to do and there, this is, there's a lot of names for this in science and technology studies, but like the other thing you have to do is decide what counts as working and to get people to agree that your system does that thing, right? So I have to, so Facebook, which is a big steaming pile of garbage, has to convince people that like what it means for Facebook to work is to do the garbage stuff that Facebook does. And once you convince people of that, then they can be like, yeah, yeah, Facebook, Facebook does exactly what it's supposed to do. Uh, but you have to get people to agree to that also. And so I think that that's part of what I try to talk about in, in the book, at least in places, is are these processes of deciding what it means for these systems to work, because there is, it should be clear, no objective way to evaluate these systems, right? Nobody knows what a recommender system should do. Um, I think a lot of people have ideas about what they should do. And it is interesting to note how many critiques of recommender systems from people who are critical of algorithms and quotation marks are, are also critiques of like them not working and they appear to have some implicit idea about what working would mean, but it's not a very deeply interrogated idea. And I think it's worth interrogating all these ideas about what it would mean for a good system to work because, you know, you scratch the surface on most of these and they're just junk. Like they're not that well thought through, even these alternatives. Do you think the limitations on critics and their ability to envision alternatives is something that's also structuring the inability of people designing these recommender systems to figure out something that works? Yeah, for, sorry, for sure. I should also be clear that like, I do not think that the critics like should come up with a better alternative. Like, I don't think it's their job. I think it's totally enough uh, and important to call out the ways these things like don't work right now. Uh, I do think, though, that in a lot of those critiques, um, despite not saying the alternative, sometimes they do say it, they do say it, um, there's like a very clear, like, it should be this instead of that, at least. Uh, and often the this also would have some serious problems, it seems like. Um, and that should make us think, right? I don't, I don't think that people should have to, like, put out a business plan or whatever for like, how, well, okay, well, are you genius going to replace Spotify? <laughs> like, I don't think we have to do that. Um, but I do think, yeah, it's, I, there's a lot of interesting, uh, and uh, interesting is my is the academic word for it, um, problematic, bad constra constraints on how these systems work. Um, okay, how, here, how about this? One funny example. So the one of the earliest papers on recommender systems, um, this was for a Usenet recommender uh, called Group Lens. So the idea is like, it's 1994, you're subscribed to a bunch of Usenet groups, you get so many Usenet messages what are you going to do? Like, oh, maybe you need a recommender system to help you figure out which of those messages you want to read. Um, you don't have enough memory on your computer to download them all. So, like, which ones are you going to do? In that paper, 
1994. Uh, the there's an idea in here. So this is like basically how recommender systems work in broad strokes through to the present. And they have this, this concept. It's very cute. Better bit bureaus is what they call them. But the idea is that there could be a third party that like holds your sort of like preference data and that, sorry, what's going on here? There we go. Uh, And that, sorry, there'd be a third party that holds your preference data. And that if you signed up with another company, they would like query that third party, the better bit bureau uh, to get your data. And that would be like, you would like host almost like the way you host your email, like at one server, you would like Mm -hmm. host your taste data and every like, you know, five or 10 years, somebody tries to make something like that happen. Uh, There was one called, there was a web 2.0 when that was called attention profiling markup language or APML. And the idea was like, you could maintain your own like JSON file basically that contained your taste in it. And it's so goofy. Like it's so clearly like not going to work, It is, but it's so not how it worked, like deeply not right. The idea mm. that like a recommender system is not just the way that Netflix recommends movies to you, but the profile that Netflix has of you, which it is not going to share uh, with anyone else for a variety of reasons, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like technically, <laughs> technical reasons, like how like it'd be a lot of work for them to do. And then of course, like, why would they, like, why would they mm. want to give someone else access to your, uh, uh, to your shit? But that's a very funky, uh, early idea. I should say that the Better Bit Bureau thing, um, they got a cease and desist from the Better Business Bureau uh, for, <laughs> for, for, for proposing to use the name. Uh, they said it was a very nice cease and desist. <laughs> that's that's great. That's good. But you're like, it is interesting to see how these things are so cyclical and keep coming back. Like everything you just described also reminds me of like, you know, like Jaron Lanier's um, solution of like, basically we all have like, we all have like a server uh, in our closet <laughs> that has our personal data from, I guess it would be Yo, so Facebook, but also Spotify and Netflix and everywhere else. I can else. roll my weed underneath the hydroponic <laughs> yeah. lights that the server cuts off. <laughs> but it, yeah, in my I, bunker. That's I good. actually thought about that. <laughs> about that stupid example early and there's others as well. Like I've heard people talk about like reputation lockers, right? It was same, similar kind of thing. Like why can't you carry your rating on Uber to your rating on Lyft to your rating to the social, on social capital, yeah, like a social capital locker, right? That you kind of have a, <laughs> a good a, idea, a consistent reputation. Um, prof- there's like classes to improve <laughs> etiquette. And- <laughs> like, <laughs> but it is, I think what it gets to, uh, because I thought about Jaron Lanier's uh, thing earlier when you were talking about like the problem around context. The critique of context is all, often kind of plays into the hands of the system where it's just like, oh, so we don't have enough context. Okay, like, which is More also data. like exactly how data brokers work, right? Like the one recourse you have to an axiom or an experience or one of these big data brokers is not say, don't collect my data, but to say, let me make sure the data you have about me is accurate, right? So in other words, like help like improve the data, right? Like, so then the problem is framed as like, the problem is having uh, inaccurate data. And so the solution is to have accurate data. And it's the same with context, yes. right? The problem is not having the right context. So the solution is having the right context. More, 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 more. Yeah. And I think it gets at two things. One is I think it like with like the kind of failings of some of this criticism is, and and to me, it also links directly into like critiques that we and others have had of like, 
this concept of surveillance capitalism as well is that like the problem with surveillance capitalism is the surveillance right um and and if we just had like the right kind or the good kind of surveillance um then it would be fine uh and it, it, i think it, it, it's on one hand it like sees the problem at a very surface level and then stops there. Like the problem is context. The problem is surveillance. The problem is inaccuracy. The problem is this doesn't work. And so thus the solution must be the inverse of that, right? More context, more accuracy, better working, better surveillance, um, rather than digging down into deeper kind of uh, things. But also I think the other aspect of it is, is that I do think a lot of critics, and, and this was absolutely a kind of hallmark of the emergence of like algorithm studies and is now very much, we're seeing the same exact thing with like the, the new kind of, the new, the new stuff around machine learning or AI, you know, whatever is like the kind of the, the flavor of the month is that like, I think a lot of people, Critics, yes, but also just a lot of the policymakers, a lot of the investors, a lot of the engineers um, don't actually know how these systems work. And at some point, they don't really care about how they work. And thus they, but, but they act as if like knowing how this works is itself just like a kind of a not a nice but not necessary component of critiquing it of regulating it of building it of financing it um and and this is something i think your book does a lot in terms of like actually trying and and succeeding at explaining in detail like Thank the you. mechanics of how this stuff works but it does seem to me that this is absolutely a uh, a really common hallmark of the commentary uh, from both you know either side of the the spectrum um, on these kinds of things is no nobody really knows or seems to care how they actually work as machines. I think yeah. I mean, I tried to do. There's a few spots in the book where I really let myself just like geek out a bit and be like, all right, we're going to like step through like how like this particular error metric is calculated. And I think the funniest thing about those moments though, actually, is that those are probably the most dated things in the book. Like there's a lot of things that are dated, but these like moments where I'm like, okay, let's talk about some like very specific kind of calculation that happens here. That stuff is done. This is not how it happens anymore. It is over. And it's been over for a while. I had like, it was done by the time I was like putting the book to press. And I was like, well, we're not going to like write about something else. This is going to go in here. And I think it points to something that's, that's a little tricky. Cause like on the one hand, yes, I want, you know, I, I appreciate technical specificity in these things. I think it's, you know, certainly better to write about them from a position, broadly speaking of knowing what they can do rather than doing that kind of, that kind of thing where you just like, believe the the like stupidest man in Silicon Valley and say like, Oh yeah, that's what's going to like, that's happening. And I'm going to say the same thing, but that it's bad, right? Like that's, that's not critique. Like that's not actually useful um, to, to say like, Oh yeah, whatever he says is possible is possible. But I also don't want to say that like, there's, there's nothing to be said beyond the quote unquote technical stuff, right? Like I think that it's important to know about, you know, the idea that we live in an algorithmically mediated world has all sorts of consequences regardless of however the hell those algorithms work. So like a good example is that people often ask me, like, what are the effects of these systems on music? Like on how music is made. There have been a ton of arguments made in a bunch of different kinds of venues, usually pretty unsupported that say like, okay, it's making music like this, you know, it's, it's making music that's like really derivative 
It's making music that's really like hook heavy or whatever. And it's funny because it's exactly the same critiques that have been made at earlier moments about other kinds of technologies. But sorry, the best example, uh, there was a Pitchfork review of Greta Van Fleet, that band that sounds exactly like Led Zeppelin. And they were like, this band sounds exactly like Led Zeppelin because it's the algorithm did it. Basically, there's like algorithms is uh, like caused this to be a ripoff because they just want to get on the playlist of people who like this kind of shit. That's the algorithm's fault. This is funny because Led Zeppelin was that band doing exactly the same ripoff of other bands shit for an earlier moment of cultural of cultural critique. And we just sub in algorithms for like the record industry. And that's really interesting because there's a very loose connection between how an algorithm works and the effects that it has on people. Right. So if I'm a musician, I can't like just know what the algorithm's doing. I'm guessing Right. I'm guessing based on what I hear. I'm guessing based on what other people say. I cannot just say like, oh, yeah, it's going to reward me if I do this. Right. I'm making it up. And so therefore that that understanding of non-experts is going to be a mediator in how algorithms have effects on cultural stuff. Some people ask me that question. Sorry. I always say, I don't know. Cause I didn't study those people. I studied engineers and you should not believe what engineers say about what the rest of the world is like. <laughs> I can tell you what they think but that they are not right necessarily. You were talking about uh, Led Zeppelin basically just discovering old blues albums and then recreating them for new generation. And then Greta Van Fleet doing the same thing with Led Zeppelin. I mean, I feel like that that's just, just trends, you know, like nowadays it, everywhere you look, it looks like people are trying to relive the mid nineties again, you know, everything from fashion to even some of the music. And I mean, I love it because that's the era when I was a teenager, but it is really confusing seeing it because you don't know if it's coming from like actual nostalgia or if it's like some 42 year old, you know, in an <laughs> office somewhere coding all this shit to be relevant again. So he can like tell his friends, like, see, I told you this stuff was going to come back. <laughs> that's part of my brain wants to think that that's what's actually happening is because I don't know, man. I, I feel like the, the younger end of the Gen, Gen X generation are pretty selfish in that sense of like forcing things that they like down other people's throats. I love the Gen X conspiracy theory idea <laughs> that like, like what's going on here is actually Gen Xers being like, you know, I, it's hard. I mean, everyone will be like, oh, yeah, well, there's these cyclical patterns to trends. And a lot of work on culture industries, right, is ex about exactly this problem of like, how do people in all these kinds of positions, you know, they sort of make the trends, they sort of respond to the trends. It's kind of both at the same time. And meanwhile, capitalism is endlessly renewing itself and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say. And I just think like the algorithm gets to be sort of like a stand in for things that people don't like, which is fine, whatever. Like it's not it, it's it makes sense. People need stand ins for, for this kind of stuff. And the algorithm is an excellent floating signifier for like whatever that is. 30 years ago, you had tastemakers creating essentially playlists and back offices with other uh, record label people uh, essentially figuring out what was going to be forced down people's throats for the next season. I mean, either way, we weren't, we really giving any options. <laughs> you're, but you're, I think to Nick's point as well, like it is a lot of like the algorithm has kind of become a stand in for other stuff. And we've talked about it before where it's like, when you hear like an algorithm did something like oftentimes you can just replace that in your mind with like a guy named Bob. Right. And it usually means the same thing, right? Like an algorithm is making housing prices go up. An algorithm is making you listen to this music, right? An algorithm is, no, it's just a, an algorithm is, 
is firing you from your job. No, it's just a guy named Bob, right? Who's doing all that stuff. And like, if a guy named Bob uh, shouldn't be able to do it, then why is it okay for an algorithm to, to do these things, right? Um, or more often than not, it's probably not an algorithm in some magical, mystical sense. It probably is actually a guy named Bob in a back office somewhere um, doing that. But also like thinking about taste recommendations and, and gatekeepers and stuff like the, the Oprah book club was the most powerful recommendation algorithm in the world in terms of like determining what is what book is going to be a bestseller um, or what book is going to be part of the discourse and stuff, right? Like, you know, it, it's interesting if we kind of backcast algorithm on some of these other forms of recommendation systems to see that like they worked in very similar ways, oftentimes far more centralized and concentrated. <laughs> wanted to circle back around and we can kind of start wrapping up the episode talking about like yes like technical specificity is really important i do think that like technical specificity comes in different forms i mean on one hand we do see the consequences of not knowing how things work where like we're watching right now some of the wealthiest most powerful venture capitalists in the world having a meltdown because they have learned what fractional reserve banking is uh and, <laughs> clown and that car. is it's a clown that car is, also i just got an alert that they got their bailout <laughs> but it was but it's not a bailout but it's not a bailout, Yellen says. Oh, God. <laughs> but, like, of course, like, who knew that the most dangerous knowledge to the economy would be venture capitalists learning about fractional reserve banking? Um, but, like, you know, at, at any rate, like, technical specificity is important. I also think ha understanding the mechanics of how a thing works is also also comes in different ways, not just in terms of like knowing the textbooks, you know, that technical specificity, how a formula works, how root mean square error works or whatever, right? Like, but also like having the right metaphors and frameworks through which to think about the operations and mechanics of these systems. And that can be a bit more general, like, you know, and, and of course it, it comes in for, you know, there's always going to be people who come in and be like, your metaphor is wrong for this reason or that reason. And there are a lot of bad metaphors out there. Um, but I think as well, like, you know, we've talked about on the show, but I think, you know, Ted Chiang's uh, New Yorker article on um, how generate on like uh, large language models and chat GPT and a blurry JPEG. I think that's a really interesting and, and, and nice framework or, or an analogy, a metaphor to think through about how the, this complex system works or what it does. I think as well, you know, along that lines, one of my favorite parts of your book is where you do explain in quite detail through, you know, and, you know, throughout the book, a metaphor um, for how to think about the work that algorithms are doing, how they work, but also the work that these programmers and these engineers are doing and how they conceive of themselves. And I want you to walk us through um, in, in however much detail you would like, however long you would like, but I would love, uh, I would love you to walk us through the kind of 
captology, captivation, trapping, but also the kind of pastoralism. I, I, I mean, I, I think it's great. I think it's also one of the most, uh, a benefit to you, Nick. I think the, the move from to past to talking about the kind of pastoralism at once one of the most it is one of the most inventive applications of classic anthropology to a contemporary technological subject i've come across in an extremely long time it really caught me off guard when you made that move oh. uh, and then expanded on it in a later chapter and i i i, I loved it but maybe start with like <laughs> captology and the captivation metrics oh and all of that okay so this is <laughs> Uh, I gave it, I will say when I first was working on this, so this is like this, this, this chapter that's based on an article called captivating algorithms, recommender systems as traps, where I try to like explain and compare recommender systems to animal traps using some of the anthropological literature on trapping, which is like a very weird literature in its own right. I should say I'm actually teaching a class right now called trap theory, where I'm like, making students read about this stuff for a whole semester. And it is so fun. Trap theory means something different on Twitter and Instagram. Let me just say that. <laughs> I know. I know. We, we talk, it comes up. There's, there's, a, we, as we say, it is polysemous. There, there are many meanings um, for these, for these terms. Okay. But it, so the, how is it like a trap? The key thing in the anthropology of trapping uh, is that a trap is a kind of technology that embodies a model of its prey and a model of its hunter at the same time. So imagine, if you will, um, a bow and arrow trap. Just think of like a cartoon. There's like a trip wire, and there's like a bow and arrow strung up on the side of a on the side of a path. And if you trip the wire, you're gonna get shot with a bow and arrow. You can see in the sort of negative space in your mind around that trap a picture of two things, right? You sort of see like a ghost hunter there, right? The bow and arrow pulled back looks like the hunter is sort of pulling it. Um, and in the location of the tripwire, in how it's sort of set up, there's a certain kind of animal like embodied in that, right? If you are a mouse, you will not trip that wire. If you are an elephant, you will not care uh, about, the, about the, the bow and arrow. You need to be the kind of animal that tries to run quickly through a thing and has the kind of leg that will get caught in that string. Um, so this is in some ways a very complicated way of making a very basic point that's very common in science and technology studies, right? Which is that there are models of users built into technologies, right? There are scripts, as we will sometimes say, embedded in technologies, and they require users to follow them in order for those technologies to work. And then there's a whole literature about, well, sometimes they don't, and sometimes they do other things, and so on. But in a lot of these technologies, there's a kind of like user designed in it. Um, so that's the basic idea. Uh, the problem with this is that I get so wonky and it gets so boring to some people that I always feel bad about going deep on it because I, I am a total nerd um, for this. But I will say the other thing that comes in in the anthropology of trapping is this very expansive sense of what it means to trap something. So abandon your idea that there's a separation between physical captivation and mental captivation because we have a lot of work that suggests you know we can analyze artworks like this right artworks are a kind of technology they are technical artifacts right they're made using technical skill they are designed with an idea of an audience in play they try to fix you in place that's maybe a little bit metaphorical um, but the idea here is that a recommender system is like that for 
users, right? That a recommender system is designed to captivate people. And with that transition from explicit to implicit ratings that I mentioned earlier, where they start to uh, not just predict, you know, you're going to like this song, a thumbs up, but you know, you're going to listen to this song. Uh, you have this move towards what I call captivation metrics, but these are things like, you know, monthly active users, daily active users, dwell time, any of these measures of like time on service that become optimization targets. So it's all this kind of stuff that people talk about now as being like the reason for radicalization on YouTube or whatever. Um, but the idea is that, you know, these systems are designed to capture your attention and to and to keep you in place. And that becomes the goal of them. And so you can analyze them through comparison with these traps. And then someone always says, but they're not trying to kill you, which is true, generally speaking. Uh, so what do we do about that? Well, go back to the literature on animal trapping in anthropology, which answers all of our questions. Uh, and what you see in that literature is a kind of continuum of trapping. So you see on one end, for instance, We'll just give some examples because these are fun. Uh, the sort of wily coyote, like I'm going to push a boulder off of something onto some, onto someone and smush them. Trap. So that's a trap that is like kills you. Boop, straight up. How about this? A net. You get caught in a net. You're a bird. Imagine you're trying to get your 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 feet out of the net, and as you try to move, you get tangled up more and more. Okay, that's like a little bit less than of getting smashed on the head with a rock, but it's you know something next on the continuum. One more. Uh, I'm a, I am a fox and I see a box propped on a stick with a piece of meat under it. And I go under and I grab the meat and I get caught in the box. I'm in a box. Now you can imagine we can keep going, right? You can sort of make the box bigger and bigger and bigger and you get less and less killed, right? As you go along this, this, this path to the point where we have kinds of trapping that verge into what we would call in anthropology pastoralism, which is like, I have a herd of animals that I've sort of trapped, I, maybe I've altered the landscape to keep them here. Maybe I've done certain things to get them to do what I want to do. And there is this surprisingly lively debate in anthropological theory about whether pastoralism is a kind of proto-capitalism. And I'm not going to get into the details of this, but the, the idea is the, li the line um, from Tim Engel. Tim Engold has this like 1970-something ethnography of Sami reindeer herding. And he says, for the pastoralist, Capital lies in the herd because the herd is like a self-reproducing kind of thing. It has some of that mystification of capital in it. There, there's a there there. Uh, it's a funny. It's a funny debate. Um, but okay, now we finally have a sort of mode of trapping where the trap is like really blown up in time and space, right? Like I'm modulating someone's environment. I don't even need to put up like walls necessarily. Um, I'm just going to funnel them through a specific spot occasionally to get, you know, their antlers or some fur or whatever the hell I want off of these animals. I'm going to milk them. Sorry, this is gross. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to milk them. Uh, and that is not unlike what we see in the sort of amassing of users on services. It is all, it is not like it in obvious ways. Right? Let's be real here. Um, but there are some interesting similarities where you see this kind of pastoralism, and then and I didn't. I, to be honest, I didn't really appreciate this until after I finished writing the book. Almost later on in the book, I take on a different set of metaphors. So the, I bring the traps metaphor myself. Right? The people say say things like, "I'm going to capture your attention," but they never are like, "I'm going to." put you in a box and, you know, I'm going to capture you in a field and milk you, right? They don't say that. Um, but, what they, but what they do say is they have these set of metaphors that I get into in a later chapter where they talk about themselves as being like park rangers or mm. farmers or gardeners or people tending to a kind of sort of natural cultural technical space in which the users are a kind of like 
you know, group of people to be moved around and navigated. You know, I'm making paths for them and they're moving along the paths that I make and stuff. And so there really is kind of a weirdly, there's a connection there um, to metaphors that they're using in a different, in a different way. Um, This is the kind of stuff that the critical theory people will be like, that is a control society. Deleuze was right. It is 1992. Everybody knows. It is enveloping, modulating, whatever, whatever it is. It's true. It is that. It is that, but it is also sorry. A was lot. that? <laughs> no, no, that was that was great. I mean, it's it also interesting as well because this is such a, a key. This this is such a key kind of part of like the the ideology and culture of technology and industry. Like just by coincidence, I was reading, you know, finishing your book and near the near the the last the one of the last chapters of the book is very, very cleverly called parks and recommendation, uh, which is where you, you. I I appreciated that, which is where you talk about the, these kind of self-applied metaphors and archetypes that, uh, um, that the people working in this industry have for themselves as park rangers, as, uh, as data gardeners, as farmers, um, and so on. Um, and just by coincidence, I was also for some, for, uh, for the, uh, book I'm currently drafting, I was revisiting Leo Marx's the, the machine in the garden, um, around, around Classic. industry and pastoralism and the, uh, in American history and culture. And, and it, you know, it's very interesting to see that come up in that chapter, but in a very, very different, uh, context than how, <laughs> than how I was looking at it. And, but seeing how these things that there's these kind of connections play throughout and, yeah, just, I find it to be very interesting, uh, in terms of, uh, thinking about something like, and we, you know, I, I highly recommend people check out the book for your very, uh, that's in, right. In, yes, of course for you, but specifically and particularly for your very in-depth and interesting discussion of the kind of ideas around captology and persuasive technology, um, and, and so on and how that kind of translates into the, the kind of captivation and captivation metrics and then how you bring the uh, anthropology of traps to bear on that but also these and then these ideas around pastoralism I mean I think it's a very very useful metaphor for how for uh, thinking about the mechanics of algorithms and the people who make these algorithms I I should say that I didn't want to leave this on the floor captology is the weirdest word in this whole book because it's the name that BJ Fogg at the persuasive technology lab at Stanford gave to his field and it sounds like it means the study of capturing people like this is literally this the field it's not supposed to be that it's from it's the weirdest acronym it's Computers as persuasive technologies, C-A-P-T-ology. And that actually, that, it is such a weirdly made neologism that I took, it took me forever to figure out how to just like explain it in writing in a way that didn't sound absurd. Because <laughs> I, I wanted to be like, it sounds like trapology, right? It really does. Uh, and it is. Maybe not on purpose. Maybe sort of on purpose. Maybe Freud was right. Maybe this is just like <laughs> happening. In any case, I found at some point in this, there's a citation in the book, which is to a Wikipedia edit on the page for Captology by someone who says he's BJ Fogg, and I have no reason to think that it wouldn't be, but I can't like verify that he changes it. Like it's not maybe it's on his own page, where it basically says, like, I call it I don't use that word anymore. I don't use 
Captology anywhere because it was too like it was too confusing to people who like thought that it was you know it meant the study of trapping people, which also it is the study of trapping. Sounds people. like such <laughs> the most bullshit backroomness background oh, yeah. is to be like C A P T ology. Yeah, uh, Come on, oh right? no, my, <laughs> my people are not really jiving with this whole idea of captology. Uh, it sounds really nefarious, but ah, full uh, the the you know tricks on you this whole time it was actually an acronym <laughs> yeah. it was it's so weird i think it wasn't ac- yeah i don't know it was one of those like goofy like combo acronym backronym same time things and it's silly it's a very it's a very silly uh, uh thing and it's it's useful to keep track of all these persuasive technology people pivoting because they are pivoting like wild now um and it's nice to be able to remember things that they said 20 years ago because uh, they're saying the opposite now I mean, yeah, and I, I really appreciated that because it felt very retro to me as well because around the same time, you know, we were in grad school at the same time and I imagine around the same exact time that you were doing your internship at uh, at Whisper, I was also becoming very, very interested in persuasive technology and BJ Fogg and all of them. And, and, and all of that seems like just kind of lost to the annals of... Uh, of of persuade of ubiquitous computing and stuff like that, but like I I, I really appreciate you not only bringing that in as like a historical uh, oddity, um, but also just drawing that kind of lineage there that like these ideas are still very present and also still very present in their as you say in their negative when you've got people like. Tristan Harris and and these other um, people kind of very self-consciously pivoting away or who is the guy, you know, writing a book called Hooked on how to make your technologies addictive or whatever. And then Uh, a few years later, writing a book to be like, uh, here's how to solve the addiction problem. I'm sorry. This is so funny to me. The near I all one is so wild because the first one is Hooked, how to build habit forming products. The second one, indistractable, something, something there. He actually represents represents like a different sort of faction of the like post, you know, post tech lash persuasive tech people. He's like doing a different thing than the Tristan Harris's of the center for humane technology. Uh, In any case, he, in the beginning of the new book, indistractable, he's like, my first book was an effort to try to describe all the ways that these companies do these techniques to try to like, to try to like hook users. And I was like, are you kidding me? The subtitle of your book is how to do this. Let's not pretend that your first book was somehow like a empirical study of like persuasion in the wild. Give me a break. I mean, to that, and then we can wrap up because I just think like, like if you have the receipts, like it's so easy to find these people backtracking and stuff. So like, you know, one of our favorites, uh, favorite characters on TMK, Chamath Palahapatiya, uh, who, you know, was at some time, was in a previous life, the VP of user growth at Facebook. Uh, and then I have this in my book, uh, in a public talk in 2017. So this is like immediate, like, Techlash era, Chamath was on stage and said, quote, 
your behavior is you don't realize it, but you are being programmed. It was unintentional, but now you got to decide how much are you willing to give up? So like these guys, you know, all at the same time had a big collective, my bad moment, right? Um, where they're like, uh, captology, we, uh, we were young and dumb and, and we didn't know what we were doing. And now we see it's, it's actually really bad. And, and a lot of times they'll use their children as excuses, right? I, I now have children and I realize that like, you know, the screen time for them, no, I would never let them use the products. I made my first $50 million building, you know, now I'm going to, I'm going to so, make my next so hundred million dollars building products to uh, help people rediscover their humanity. I think it's worth being really specific about this too. Cause it's not just that they're saying like, Oh my bad. Like I did a bad thing. Um, it's, I did it so well. Like it was so good. The thing that I was doing was so persuasive and so effective that it's a problem, right? And it's not, it's actually not unlike what I talk about in the epilogue, although at like a different kind of scale, like in the epilogue of my book. But this, but so like why it matters is because if you look at someone like Tristan Harris and a Center for Humane Tech event, so I'm writing about this now for, I'm working on a book about attention and as a sort of next thing after this. And if you look at what they're doing, they're saying like, okay, the reason that we need to do this is because these technologies are so powerful. So they still have this this worldview, right, where like the only sort of way to make world historical change is technology, right? Like tech, like software is the privileged form of action on the world in any direction. Um, and it is exactly the same as the kind of like, you know, surveillance capitalism kind of critique that's like, oh my gosh, you're being marionette string controlled by Facebook, right? It's the same. One group says, and that's bad. Uh, and the other, and the other group says, you know, uh, and that's bad, but you know, it could be better if we had a nicer person on the marionette strings, right? Yeah. Or if we like cut your strings loose and somehow you get to like run your own marionette, you know, your Jaron Lanier's auto marionette factory or whatever <laughs> it is. Yeah. And of course, shout out to friend of the show, Corey Doctorow, who, you know, whole small book on how to destroy surveillance capitalism is essentially a big critique of that, like mind control Ray discourse, um, and undermining oh. this idea that, yeah, like, uh, you know, the, the kind of critic hype around that as Lee Vinsel calls it. I think that's a great place to end the episode. I, I highly recommend, um, for all the reasons we've talked about it, Thank more you. people go check out, uh, Nick Seaver's new book, Computing Taste, Algorithms and the Makers of Music Recommendation. Just a fantastic um, ethnography of this industry. Um, a, a lot of surprising and delightful applications of classic anthropological theory to contemporary technology. Um, and, you know, uh, also just very, very important for at once understanding not only how the technologies actually work and what they can actually do and can't do, but also what the people who make them think uh, and the very, the very different ideas um, that they bring to making these technologies and stuff. So Nick, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and having a nice long chat with us about your book. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. Uh, and people can find you at Twitter at MPCver, and we'll have a link to that in the episode description. Do you want to direct? What about my Mastodon account? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm joking. You can look at my <laughs> tweets if you want to find my Mastodon. I don't know where I am anymore. That's good. <laughs> Speaking of attention, do you want to direct people's attention to uh, anywhere else they can find your work or anything that they should be? 
keeping their eyes open for uh, on the horizon. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You can go to nicksiever.net and see all of this stuff. I think a lot of the stuff that's in the book actually is sort of, uh, uh, revised versions of things that are in articles. So if you're not feeling up for a book, um, you can look on my website and find a lot of that stuff that's written there, but yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for reading. Mm, of course, I, I will say, I've, having read the articles, I recommend the book. <laughs> it's a very breezy read. It's a good idea to pay money for the book and to give, yeah, to give money to the <laughs> companies that make the book and give some of the money then to me. That's I right. think it's a good idea. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you, Nick. And you, dear listeners, can, of course, find us at patreon.com slash thismachinekills, where you can give us money uh, for additional episodes every single week um, on the Patreon feed. So find us there. Uh, and until next time, later. Adios.